Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all of the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is God's word for God's people. All right. Hey, we're going to pray here in a second and get into that psalm. But uh, one thing I just wanted to address really quickly, uh, most of you have probably heard uh, in our country, there was a pretty monumental Supreme Court decision a couple days ago, um, which basically reversed uh, a, a, a law that basically made it protection for abortions in our country. And so what happened is that basically pushed it now to the states that they get to decide. Uh, and so for us as a church and as Christians, this is something that we should celebrate. This is an exciting moment um, for us as a people. And uh, while we can celebrate that, because we do believe that that, that being in that womb is actually a human being, is actually a baby. Uh, we celebrate the fact that, um, that now that can be more protected. Hopefully abortions are less. I also want to say that as the church, um, this isn't our like end game right? So uh, we can often think, man, for so long it was, let's just get Roe overturned. And once it's overturned, like that's the win. Uh, We should see that as a win in the ongoing battle and the ongoing fight for life. And so I do want to encourage us as a church, we should celebrate that. The most like violently targeted group of people in our country over the last few decades has been the unborn. And now it's going to be harder for that to happen. That's a justice issue that is great. 
And as a church, we should continue on in the fight for life moving forward. And so I just want to encourage you guys that maybe you'd consider, there's a lot of different ways that we can engage in this. Um, you know, there's a great crisis pregnancy center here in Omaha called Assure. Um, we actually did a podcast episode with the executive director of the Women's Center there. And so you can check that out to find out more information or go to their uh, website, figure out some stuff there. They're doing great work to maybe get involved in. I also want to unashamedly kind of push our church to consider foster care, consider adoption, consider helping fund families that do that, consider the, the holistic help of both that unborn baby and the mom, okay? So we need to be a church that's about health holistically and for women who feel like that's their only option or women or dads who have had abortions in the past. We need to be gracious and loving and caring. And so this is a great moment. We should celebrate that and it should continue to spur us on to the fight for life even more. And so um, with that kind of in the vein of Thanksgiving, I think that's an important thing for us as a church just to note. Um, but now let's pray and then we will uh, jump into Psalm 45. Father, uh, we are grateful for that Supreme Court decision. We're grateful that hopefully more lives will be protected. We're grateful for your justice for the unborn to come. Um, God, we pray that as our church, as the church in our country, um, that we would be leading the fight and leading the charge and caring for um, these children and the women in these situations. So help us, whether that's with dollars, whether that's with opening our homes and families, whether that's with volunteering at pregnancy centers, whatever that might look like, God, we trust you to give us that direction and would we be a church that fights for that. Um, and God, we know that, that that's true and we base our convictions off of your your word and what is true. And so that's why we anticipate every Sunday morning getting to come and hear your word and letting that shape us. So now as we come to Psalm 45, we pray that you would do the same. Would you help us? Would you give us sharp minds and soft hearts that we might understand this text and that it would help us grow in our worship of you? Um, and would you just work in a unique way in our church family that we would love you and worship you in greater ways? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this last week, my wife and I got to celebrate our seventh wedding anniversary, which was awesome. Thank you. Yes. I told the first service I could go on about all the ways in which she's put up with me for seven years, but all of you that know us already know that's true, so I don't need to tell you any of that. Uh, but it has been just like any marriage, it's had some amazing moments. We've had some challenging moments. Uh, but one of the fun things about an anniversary is that you kind of get to look back. You know, it's kind of, you sit there and you're like, man, seven years, and you, you kind of think or you can look at pictures of what it was like on that wedding day. And for us, it's just an amazing, amazing day. We had a very complicated, rocky relationship leading up to that. And so to get there is just a sign of God's grace and protection for us. You get in that room where there's just friends and family, they're supporting you. Uh, we got married obviously in June, so it's a hundred degrees outside. We got married in this little church building that the AC wasn't working that day. So it was like 110 degrees inside. Uh, and then we actually did our reception at this like newer venue and the AC wasn't working there either. So it was like a hundred degrees in that room. And so it was like, like the whole day, people are like laughing, eating, dancing, just profusely sweating. It was an intense kind of moment, but, but it was so fun. Like you think about that is just a 
special day in any relationship, that actual moment. And again, for me, it was even more special because we did the thing where we didn't see each other beforehand. And so I'm standing at the altar about to go through this ceremony. And I see, you know, Bailey, she comes around the, the corner down the aisle and I get to see her. And it's just one of those surreal moments that, you know, it probably took 20 seconds, feels like minutes and hours that she's just slowly walking. And it's one of the most like surreal, emotional minutes or a few seconds of my life. But, but that whole wedding day, it's just this like celebration, it's joy. And it's actually that type of joy, celebratory wedding moment that is the emotional setting of our psalm for this morning. Uh, as Ken just read, uh, it's titled a, a love song, or maybe some of your Bibles would say a wedding song. This is, this is a celebration of a marriage. And not just any marriage, actually, it's the celebration of a king, the people, Israel, their, their king and his bride. This is a royal wedding. Now, again, I know maybe some of you follow along with kind of the royal family in Britain, maybe follow the news stories and different stuff. Um, one of the things that is, uh, you know, marked by this family is when they do weddings, if you've seen pictures or videos or whatever, it's like extravagant. It is like a, a huge celebration. One of the biggest was actually in 2011, uh, Prince William married his bride, Kate, and it was this huge extravagant thing. But one of the things that's so interesting is that the people there, much more than us, because we follow it for the gossip and the glam and all that kind of stuff from a distance. But think about that day, if you're a citizen of that country, when Prince William got up there and he was getting married to Kate, this is their future king. Like he is their leader. He is in line to be king of these people. And they got there and there's this joyful celebration of him and his bride. And that's actually exactly what's happening in Psalm 45. It speaks of a king who these people love, who's majestic. He's their warrior, their leader. And actually, as we'll get into a little bit, in some sense, their savior. So they love this king and they're celebrating this marriage in joy between him and his future wife. Now, church, we've said this uh, throughout the last few weeks in the Psalms. Uh, we read the Psalms kind of in two ways, right? So we have kind of two different lenses that we're looking at this. One is kind of the narrow lens, the scope, where we're looking at this Psalm as actually happening for Israel, for God's people. This is historic and a real event that's going on. But we also kind of zoom out and we get the broader lens and we see all these Psalms as they point to ultimate fulfillment. Right? So as we're looking at these psalms, we can see the celebration and the joy for them and their king. But I think if that both is true, it also allows us to enter in a celebratory, joyful moment as we consider our king. Because, you know, as we've said the last few weeks, uh, the psalms that we've been leading up to this one in is uh, a, a people in suffering, a people in despair, a people needing help. And they're asking, God, would you send a king to help us? Well, as we've said, so too are we a people that have lived in the midst of being sinners, of being sufferers, of being weighed down by our enemies of sin and death and Satan, of living in this effect of exile. And we've said we too are a people who needed help, who needed deliverance. We too, like the people of God in the past, needed God to send us a king to lead us home. And so while we can read this as a celebration of the past, we also can get wrapped up into this as we think about our relationship with our king. 
So today, uh, one main thing I want to do for us as a church is, I think in a lot of evangelical circles, churches like ours, we often talk about this idea of a relationship with Jesus. Right? You've probably heard that. We say that. that that's not bad. Um, but I think sometimes we can talk about that in kind of a shallow way, if you know what I'm talking about. And I think what Psalm 45 can do is give that idea of, of our relationship with Jesus some depth and give it some like magnitude and some glory. Because if what Psalm 45 is saying is ultimately true of us and Jesus, it like explodes a lot of our vision of who Jesus is and what our relationship to him is like. So that's kind of my hope for us this morning. So we can kind of reshift and reorient our perspective of our relationship with King Jesus. So if you got a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm 45. If you're a note taker, uh, there's kind of three movements to this psalm. So we're just going to take those in three points. The first one is the king's victory. The second one is the king's throne. And then finally, the king's bride. So that's the way we'll work through this psalm. So Psalm 45, let's look at the king's victory in the first five verses. The psalmist writes, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, and the peoples fall under you. So again, this is a, it's a, it's a love song about the king and his bride, but the psalmist begins by just this like heaping on of praise for this king. If you look just at the first three verses, right away he says, my heart is overflowing for this king. He says the king is the most handsome His words are filled with grace. He is blessed by God. He has splendor and majesty in his strength. This is gushing praise for this king. Now remember why this would be so exciting. The last few Psalms we've talked about, the the psalmists and, and the people of God have been in the midst of suffering and they've been begging God. Would you send someone, send help, send a deliverer, send your king. And now the psalmist sees this king and he says, that's him. Like he's here. He is more handsome than any. He's taller and stronger. He's more mighty. He's more gracious and good and righteous. Like this is the one that we wanted. In verses two and three, it mostly is speaking of his greatness. But then if you notice in verse four, it kind of switches. So he's not just saying he's a strong, mighty king, but in verse four, he switches to actually tell the king, now go out and battle for us. Like you're this good, righteous, just king, go out and fight. Look at the first line in verse four. He says, in your majesty, ride out victoriously. So he's not just calling for the king to look great. He's saying now, go be great. Like go, go actually deliver us. Go be victorious for us. Go do what you can do. He's asking, be our royal leader of the people but also be our warrior, like be our fighter. Uh, you can maybe think of the great leader of Wakanda, right? The Black Panther. Because what he does is he's the king. He's like the leader of the people, but he's also their warrior. Like he goes out and he fights for them. That's what the psalmist is asking. He's like, hey, be our leader of, a, of the people, 
but also go fight our battles. Like go and be on the front line. He's saying, don't just look great, go and be great, right? Because it's one thing to look the part, you know, to have the right qualities on paper, to seem like you know what to do. That's all great, but it's another thing to actually go and do it. Like to put those characteristics or attributes into action. Because there's lots of people, even in our world today, there's a lot of people with great um, resumes and pedigrees and attributes and on paper they look awesome. But it's another thing for the bosses and the presidents and the military leaders that really are great, they are the ones who act. They're the ones who take what they have and actually put it in service for their people. And that's what the psalmist is asking for. He's saying, King, you are great, you're mighty, you're handsome, you're strong, you can do it. Go lead us. Go be victorious. Go take us where we need to go. Uh, Jim Hamilton uh, explains verses four and five in that idea this way. He says, the psalmist calls for his king to arm himself for war. His hope is for the king to come and once come to conquer. Thus, he longs for the mighty man to come in splendor and majesty. That's what he's asking for. And the end of this section actually points to the fact that that is happening. That this great king who has come is actually doing this. Look at uh, verse five. He says, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies and the peoples fall under you. So he's saying the king has been sent by God. Now he has gone to fight the battle and the enemies have fallen. So more than anything else, the king's victory is what primarily makes this king so great. Which makes sense, right? Who are the great leaders in history? Who are the ones that we mostly remember? It's the ones that have won their battles. It's the ones who have actually gone out in service of their people. So we think of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill and even historically like Alexander the Great, right? These leaders who have actually acted and served and done something for their people. Not that any of them are perfect, but that they are victorious. And that's what God's people needed. They needed a king to be victorious on their behalf. And that's what the psalmist is saying this king has done. So what then happens if he has come now, been victorious for his people, what then happens for this king? Well, this next section, we're going to hone in on this idea of his throne. All right, so once he is victorious, he gets this eternal throne. Look at verses six and seven. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So he's looking here and he says, the greatness of the king He has now been given this throne, and now this throne is great, if you notice the language in these verses. Uh, But what's interesting is actually, especially in verse 6, they they talk about this throne in kind of startling ways. Let me just show you two ways that he talks about this that that actually is a little bit unique. Uh, Just in that first line, look first. He says, once this king was victorious, God has given him an eternal throne. He says, it goes on forever and ever. Now, for the psalmist and the people then, uh, they, were not, um, they were not dumb. They knew that people didn't live forever, okay? So they knew. He's saying, you're throne, you're going to go on forever and ever. 
And commentators have wondered, well, what do they really mean by that, right? Because that seems odd when they know that this person's not actually going to go on forever and ever. And so some people say, well, it's kind of like that saying, you know, like, let the king live forever. Or, May the queen live forever, right? So it's like, well-wished blessing. Like, you, you should get a throne forever. Others have said it's really pointing to this covenant that God made with King David. If you remember that in the Old Testament, God promised King David that he would always have someone from his line, his family, on the throne. So they're saying, well, really what he means is, you know, you'll die, but then your son will have the throne, and then his son will have the throne, and your throne will be forever and ever. Okay, so that somewhat makes sense of it. Those might be kind of true. But it's also interesting to note how he speaks of the king in this verse. Okay, look again at verse six. He says, speaking to the victorious king, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So speaking to the king, he calls him God. Now again, some commentators will kind of try to explain this by saying, well, really in the ancient Near East, this time period, a lot of cultures assumed or kind of gave divine-like qualities to their kings. So they kind of thought their kings were like gods. Uh, which is foreign for us because we don't often think our leaders are gods. Uh, I have not heard many people going around touting President Biden as divine recently. So that's not what we usually do. But back then, that is what they did. Like their leader was essentially, they would assume they're a god. Uh, The most notable in the Bible example of this is uh, with Egypt and with Pharaoh. That Pharaoh, uh, they thought he either had divine qualities or he was a god or was becoming a god. So some say, well, that's simply the idea that's going on here. They're saying, you're so great, you're, you're like a god. Or, you know, just like all the other nations think they're gods, well, we have our god who's on the throne. Again, both those things might be true in part. But I definitely don't think that's the full picture of what God has inspired in Psalm 45. Because again, we have to remember, as we're looking at these Psalms, they are fulfilled and true in part in history, but all of them are shadows that are pointing to something greater. The ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 45 in those few verses is not an earthly king who's victorious for a moment and then dies, and then his son comes, and then his son comes. And it's not saying that these kings are just God-like. All of these things are actually pointing us to something more. I think the ultimate fulfillment is an eternal king, a divine eternal king whose victory will last forever. And I know that. I'm not just making that up or kind of imposing that, I don't think, because I think that's what both the Psalms and especially the New Testament teach us about how to make sense of this. So um, if you can track with me for a couple minutes, I just want to prove to you that this Psalm, that's not what it's only speaking about. Okay, so if we start in the Psalms, a quick Bible tip on the Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2 is actually like the introduction to the whole Psalm. So that's kind of the heading or the umbrella where everything else fits under. Well, in Psalm 2, God says that he is going to have an ultimate king that's going to come one day. And he's going to sit on a throne, on his holy hill, in his presence. And this king, he says, would be his son. So God's promising a king is coming who's ultimately going to reign forever and he will be my son. So now that's the introduction. So all these other king psalms 
are all like pointing to that. And we're always wondering, is this the king? Was David the king? Is Solomon the king? Who is this son of God who would be king? Well, if you go to the New Testament, let's just sit in Matthew for a second. We've been studying Matthew. If you're new here for the last couple of years, we've been in Matthew. And what has been the theme over and over again in Matthew? He's asking, who is that king? Right? Who's the king of God's people? Now, in Matthew, what we just looked at on Easter, you have this great scene in the middle of the book where Jesus is asking his disciples, who do you think I am? Right? Like, who, what's my identity? And what does Peter say? Peter says, you are the Christ, which means anointed one, or the word for king in the Old Testament, the son of the living God. So he says, you're the king and the son looking back at Psalm 2. But then later in Matthew, at the very end, uh, at this scene where Jesus dies on the cross and he sheds his blood, he gives his last breath, the only thing that Matthew records that is said in that moment is by a Roman military man and he looks at Jesus on the cross and says, truly this was the son. So Matthew's asking, who's this king? In the two pivotal points in Matthew, he's saying to Jesus, that's the king. This is the one that Psalm 2 is pointing to. This is the one where all the Psalms speaking about a king are ultimately pointing us to. Now, here's the crazy thing as we look through Matthew. Because up until that point, when he dies on the cross, he does not look like the victorious king who would reign forever. Even during his life, he didn't look like that especially as he takes the cross and he dies, nobody in that scene is thinking this is the eternal king, right? Because he's dying at the hands of his enemies. It doesn't look like he's actually victorious. It actually looks like he's being defeated. But what the Bible tells us is that's not the story of the gospel. See, his dying on the cross was not his final defeat. It was actually his battle where he was defeating our enemies. Ephesians 1 says that when he was on the cross and he shed his blood, it says that he did that for our redemption, which is pointing to the fact that when he died, that wasn't him losing, that was him actually doing what he came to do. He actually came, the cross in this weird sense is his enthronement ceremony. He's proving he's the king who gets the throne because he's the one who would actually die for his people. He's the one where all of us needed forgiveness. We needed a defeat of Satan. We needed a defeat of death. And in that cross, he's the one who's doing that for us. He's proving he's the king. And we know that because three days later, God validated that sacrifice by rising him again from the dead. He's saying, this is the victorious king. And after he won that war, Philippians 2.9 says, after the war on the cross was won, he says, therefore, listen to the kingly language here, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It goes on to say, he will now be called the king of kings. He is forever exalted because he is the victorious king for his people. But we could still ask, what about this throne, right? Like this forever eternal throne, is that actually a piece of it? Well, in Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews actually gives that direct answer to us when he quotes Psalm 45, verses six and seven. He says, speaking of Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, but of the son, God says, and then he quotes it. 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So the author of Hebrews is saying he didn't just gain that victory. He actually is the fulfillment of Psalm 45. So what the New Testament says is, look, that son who is going to come to rule and reign for God's people in Psalm 2, that's Jesus. right? The, the ultimate king of Psalm 45 who's going to rule and reign forever, that's Jesus. As we go to the New Testament, he's saying that cross was not his defeat and death. That was his beginning of his throne. That is where he is now victorious. And his eternal throne is ruling and reigning in all of heaven. The New Testament saying all of this stuff in Psalms pointing to a king. Yeah, that's pointing to Jesus. That victory that we need, that's coming through Jesus. That leader that we need to take us back to God, that happened in Jesus. The one that we need to rule and reign forever to finally defeat wickedness and evil and oppression and all of that, yeah, that's happening in Jesus. Psalm 45 is pointing us to the great king, Jesus, whose rule and reign has no end. So that's the picture that the psalmist gives us of this king. What was great in an earthly sense becomes even greater in the eternal sense in Jesus. But that does still leave the point of our initial question of, how does that then enhance our relationship with Jesus? But if that's what this psalm could do for us, if that's his greatness, how does that enhance how we see ourselves with Jesus? I'll be honest, my natural tendency is to think, well, yeah, he's king, he's almighty, I serve him, I bow to him, like I, he, I'm his subject, I'm his citizen, right? That's actually not where the psalmist goes. He says he's a victorious king, but it's not just about the king, what's this about? It's about his bride. Look at the rest of this psalm. It now switches to not speak to the king, but he switches to speak to the king's bride in verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek, you, seek your favor with gifts and the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth and I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Again, my natural tendency in my theology is to think Jesus is great and I just, I'm just here to serve him, right? This psalm says Jesus is great, he's victorious, and his victory comes not just with citizens of a kingdom, but with a beautiful bride. So we could ask then, okay, so that's Psalm 45, but does that directly fit within the ultimate redemption? That's the narrow lens. This king, he was victorious. He got a bride. They live happily ever after. But what about ultimate redemption? How does that fit? Who exactly is this bride of Jesus, if that's what this is talking about? Well, once again, we get a great New Testament answer for us directly because in Ephesians 5, uh, Paul is speaking about human marriage, one man, one woman, and how that all fits together. And he says in verse 32, speaking of marriage, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying our marriage reflects a greater marriage, and this marriage is between Christ 
and the church, which means who is the bride of Christ? It's us. It's his people, the church. His victory as king didn't just gain him like some honor and fame and power and money and recognition. He fought for a bride. It's made me think this week of like, I mean, I, almost any Liam Neeson movie, but if you think of like Taken, where he's got his like wife and daughter and they're Taken, whatever, and he basically says, I will do anything to go and get them back. Like they are gone. I will give up my life. I'll do anything to go retrieve them and bring them back. And this is the story of the gospel that Jesus said so that he could love and have his bride, he went to the uttermost. He went to the place of actually giving up his life so that he could bring his bride home. I think for us, we need to consider this morning, do we see ourselves as part of the beautiful, beloved bride of Jesus? Again, I know for me, I know for probably some of you, that's not our first instinct, is to see ourselves as one who is deeply loved and cared for by Jesus. Do you see yourself, not just kind of adding Jesus into your life a little bit, but that you're actually in this union, this commitment, this covenant, like marriage with him. Like deep union, intimacy, relationship, and affection. And again, I know that's hard for some of us to even like feel that, probably especially for guys in the room. Like it's hard to think that I'm married to Jesus. I understand that. And I'm also just giving you Bible here. Like that is what the Bible says, that we are in this deep loving relationship with Jesus. We are his bride and he is our groom. And so I think that not only, you know, the gospel doesn't just change, you know, we, we don't just move from death to life or from a sinner to a saint or those things. Those are all true. But I think the gospel also should shift and shape how we view our relationship with Jesus. And especially this psalm is a great one to do that. So let me just do this. Um, I want to end with just kind of a final challenge probably for like three different groups of people in the room, okay? So I think this psalm might be able to press in. I'm not gonna go super in depth. I'm gonna trust the Spirit's gonna kind of put you wherever you need to be and bring whatever you need to bring to mind. Um, but I want you to look at verses 10 and 11. And I just wanna ask the question, if that's true, if we're the bride of Jesus, how should that actually shape how we view our relationship? Or what might that call us to today? Look again at verses 10 and 11. He says, hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty, since he is your Lord, bow to him. I think for the church, the call of Jesus' bride is this. Forget your old ways and commit to Jesus. The verse is saying, for the bride, forget your old life, essentially. That, where you came from, how you lived, all of that. Like, your old relationship, like, forget that. You are now with the king. He says, since he's your Lord, you bow to him. You worship the king. And I think this is our call as the bride of Christ. So let me just give maybe three groups of people for what that might look like. Um, for some, I'm sure you're here and you have not actually submitted your life to Jesus. Not a Christian. Maybe, I, I will say for some of you, maybe you have thought that you are a Christian because you go to church sometimes and you try to be better than your neighbors and you try to do some good things and you're probably good enough and you grew up in America, so you're a Christian. Or maybe for some of you, um, that's not your story. Maybe you would say you're not a Christian because you truly believe that Jesus could not actually love someone like you. 
Or maybe you're here and you, you're not a Christian, but you're kind of searching. You're trying to figure out what this is. For any of those stories, I think the call from this is to actually kind of give up the way of life that you've been living, give up the earning Jesus's love, give up the, the notion that you're too bad for him, and actually come to Jesus this morning. And actually submit to the idea that he is not just your Lord, but he is a loving person who wants you to actually come to him. That you're not too bad and that you can't earn his love on your own, but that all you actually have to do is surrender to him in faith and commit your life to him. That that, I think, is the call for some. Now, for the second group, I think this text might mean for some that we need to forget the sin and the shame of the past and actually live in our new life with Jesus. Okay, so here's what I mean by that. I think for a lot of us, I think there's a lot of different reasons why, but we kind of carry some like shame and guilt, maybe from previously in your Christian life, but especially maybe for things you did before you were a Christian. And we can kind of carry this stuff and you kind of just you kind of carry it and maybe it's just hard to give up. Maybe it's just a part of you. Maybe you kind of feel like you need to punish yourself a little bit, whatever that might be. I think this Psalm is actually saying, hey, you can lay that down and actually walk in new life with Jesus. That he's not fixated on your mistakes of the past and he's not asking you to feel condemned. He's actually trying to free you from those things that that's the love of Jesus. Not that he'll just you know, unite himself with the sinner and just let you keep on sinning, but that he actually wants to take that shame, take that sin and remove it. And what's interesting is to note this, or this psalm speaks of the bride's beauty, her beautiful clothes, her joyful companions around her. I mean, everything is kind of exalting this bride. And Ephesians 5 would say too, that is how Jesus sees us. Like if you're a part of the church, if you're in with Christ, he sees you that way. And I think maybe for some of us, the call today is not to continue carrying guilt and shame and seeing yourself as an addict or um, somebody who's done all these things, but maybe actually changing your view of yourself to how Jesus sees you. That he sees you as beautiful and whole. He says in Ephesians 5 that he's gonna wash us clean. That that's actually your new life in Christ. That old creation, that old self that you once lived in, that's actually not you anymore. And just like Jesus has put that away, you can also put that away. Now, I know that that's, that's hard to actually live into. And so I do want to encourage you, if that's something that's like your story, where you kind of live with that, I would encourage you to seek somebody out. Come let us know. We'd love within our church, we've got people that can help walk with you in this. And I'm not saying today is going to magically take all that, but today might be the prompt for you to start the process of healing. Because I do believe that Jesus wants to heal us from that. Now, lastly, uh, if I can be a little bit more forward and stern. For the last group of people, I think this is a call to forget the earthly or worldly ways and things that you still love and actually give those up and come to Jesus. And here's what I mean. Imagine, go back to our wedding ceremony, imagine that you have a bride and her groom and they get married and it's awesome and everyone's celebrating and at the end of the night, she goes back to live with her parents again. 
And then the next couple weeks, she's, you know, dating some other guys and she's still kind of doing her thing as a single girl. And, you know, maybe once a week on a Sunday, she gets breakfast with her husband and every once in a while she'll call during the week just to hear what he's got to say and stuff. But for the most part, she's like, well, I still have my life. Like I still need to live and there's, you know, other options and there's other things that make me feel good. And I'm still committed to these things and families and stuff in the past. And so I'm going to keep doing that. All of us would say that's lunatic, Like there's no way you can have a marriage doing that, yet so often we think we can do that with our relationship with Jesus. We would say, yeah, I'm in with Jesus, you know, on Sunday, and I try to read my Bible once in a while, but but I still have my life. Like I still have things I want to achieve. I still have things I want to do. I still have, you know, all these old ways of life that I can't, you know, I don't have to totally give up, right? This psalm is saying, forget the past, forget the world, and cling to Jesus, Like those things that you just are always kind of going back to, the the money and the possessions and the worldly things and the reputation and all of that stuff. He's saying, forget it. Not only should you do that because he's your creator and your redeemer, but he's actually just a far better lover than any of those things in the world. Like he actually wants your good and your thriving. He says, I've come to give my bride life abundantly. All these things can't offer anything that they promise. But continually we run back and we try to live in this old way of life. And I think Psalm 45 is a call, forget the world and the things of the past and worship Jesus. Now again, I'm not saying that means that we have to live in communes and all this kind of stuff, but, but those things that cling to your heart, those things that are really still king in your life, he's saying those aren't your king anymore. That, that's not the relationship anymore. Your relationship is with Jesus. And so often I think we, we can wonder why in the world does my relationship with Jesus feel stagnant and stale and I'm stuck? We're not actually living with him. We're not actually walking with him. We think that we can run around being unfaithful and then say, Jesus, why are you so far from me? Like if that bride is asking five years later, why don't I feel close to my husband? We'd have the direct answer. You're not actually in a committed relationship. And so often we look to Jesus and we're like, why do I feel distant? We're not in a committed relationship. The Bible is calling us to forget the things that we used to cling to and run to Jesus. Now, I'll end with this because I know that's the call, I think. I also recognize that we will continue to struggle with this wherever you land in that. We continue to struggle because the Bible says we're in this unique period. It's kind of like we're in this engagement season which if you're married, you know that's not a fun season ultimately. Like that's not the goal. Uh, and it actually in the Old Testament, they had this idea of betrothal, which is like, it ratchets up engagement a couple steps where it's like you, you really are in and, and it's like you are husband and wife. You just quite haven't done the ceremony and consummated the marriage. Like it's, you're in, like you're committed, but you're not quite there yet. The Bible says that's what the Christian life is really like. Like you are united to Jesus. You're with him. He's yours. You're his. You will be with him forever but there's still this little veil, right? There's still this sense of like, I'm not fully with him yet. I don't fully see him yet. I can't fully be in his presence yet. We're in this engagement season, but the hope of the Bible, again, I love the New Testament. It never leaves us wondering. It's just the hope of the Bible is that that wedding day is coming. Revelation 19, in fact, says, let me just read this for you. Revelation 19, six and seven The author says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. He's saying, look, on that day when the new heavens and the new earth come, 
the great celebration is the wedding. That's what's so good about that day when all of this will fade and we go to the new heavens and the new earth. The beauty is that we're finally going to be there fully with him forever. And so we live with that day in mind, knowing the greatness of King Jesus and our relationship with him. And we commit to him today, walking in that way as we await our wedding day. Let's pray. Father, God, we're so grateful um, that you didn't leave a people in sin and suffering, but that you have come for us. That you sent your son to die victoriously as a king. What looked like defeat was actually his victory. And so we pray, uh, even right now, God, for anyone in the room and whatever maybe category they might be in, wherever they're at with you, I pray that this vision of your greatness as our king, the one who will lead us back to the Father, would also shape our relationship with you, that yes, we are citizens in your kingdom. We, we live to serve you. You are the one who is the lover of our soul. You're our, you're our great marriage that we have with you. And so God, I pray that you would help us to feel that sense of union and commitment from you and that we would respond in our commitment to you. So God, would you help bring anything up that needs to now? And God, I pray um, that you would be with us as we move forward. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and